Well, I'm turning this evening to Revelation chapter 2 once again. Revelation chapter number 2. And we'll be looking tonight at verses 12 through 17. And we'll be studying and looking at the church in Pergamos. The church in Pergamos. Uh, We are going to consider yet again another one of the uh, letters that were written to these seven churches. And with each of these uh, churches, we have learned a little bit more, not only about the church, but even a little bit more about our Lord. And uh, we've been reminded each and every week how the Lord himself walks in the midst of these churches, and he is fully aware of what is going on in each one. The letter to Pergamos introduces us to also a, another aspect of what God knows. Uh, God knows the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Uh, Pergamos is one of the letters, again, that there is a commendation that is given to the church. Uh, but as many of these letters will contain, he also has something against them as well. Uh, If you'll look with me at verse number 12, we'll begin reading there. It says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith. Even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Here we consider this church at Pergamos. Pergamos at one time was the very seat of the Roman government. It was the very center of what we would have to refer to as the worship of the emperors or the worship of those who were seated in the high places of the Roman uh, rule. Christ calls this place, Pergamos, the place where Satan's seat is and where Satan dwells. In Pergamos, it was well known that citizens were asked to offer, and in many times commanded to offer incense to the image of the emperors and also to confess Caesar as Lord. A refusal to worship Caesar, a refusal to acknowledge Caesar, or even failing to participate in the feasts and the very festivals of the day would result in, at the very least, loss of employment uh, and also becoming an outcast. In some cases, depending upon who the individual was, it would also lead to possible death. If one wanted to succeed 
in Pergamos. If one wanted to be known as having arrived, a person would have to compromise nearly everything they believed. Certainly there was no room for Christ in a place like Pergamos. For a Caesar to say, you must worship me, you must acknowledge me as Lord, is a travesty to a believer. It is something that we could not do with a right conscience. We could not bow down or give reverence and honor and praise and worship to a Caesar. There is mention of an individual by the name of Antipas who was martyred. The Bible tells us he was martyred for his faithfulness to Christ. His faithfulness to Christ. Now whether or not he was in violation of all these other things, whether he was in violation of not attending the festivals, not attending the feast, whether he refused to confess Caesar as Lord, ultimately what caused him his life was his faithfulness to Christ. There's not a lot known about this man. There are a lot of speculations about this man. Many believe that at some point in time, he was the pastor of the church at Pergamos. The church of Pergamos was aware of him, we know, because he says, it says, who was slain among you. So the church of Pergamos knew about him. Now whether or not he was the pastor or whether or not he was just well known, they knew that he took a stand and that he died because of his faithfulness to Christ. I meditated on that thought a number of times this week. Thinking about the reality of here, whoever lives in the pages of Scripture, his tombstone, if you will, would read Antipas, my faithful martyr. Now, we could investigate a lot about him. We could learn a lot about his history, and it's out there. We could certainly do it. But it's what he is declared to be by the Lord himself. My faithful martyr. Think about what that means. A martyr is one who has given up his life. It is one who has refused to fail to renounce Christ. To be called faithful by our Lord is the highest of aspirations, is it not? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Many times we have uh, attempted over the years to try to tell God what faithfulness looks like. And we've tried to uh, put it into a program that says, here's what faithfulness looks like. Here's what we do know. Our Lord declares this man to have been faithful. Faithful unto death. Certainly, he is one of those individuals that we learned about in, in verse 10 when we dealt with the church in Smyrna who received a crown of life. There's no question about that. He was an example to the church at Pergamos. Now you'll notice that as we look at the inscription of the letter, each, one, each time a new letter is introduced to us, there is an inscription that tells us who the letter is written to. And again, this like the other previous letter says, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos write. So it's to the angel of the church in Pergamos. Again, we could talk a lot about the... Uh, planting of this church. We could talk about how it was started, who was responsible for it, but here's the beauty of this. Every church that is of Christ was called 
and constituted by God himself and was planted and put in that place. Pergamos was a place where there was a church that was proclaiming and preaching the gospel. There was a place where the gospel was faithfully adhered to. So Christ sends this message to Pergamos and he gives another description of himself. These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. This is a title that Christ gives to himself. He that is a sharp two-edged sword. He describes himself as one who has a sharp sword with two edges, which is very similar to what was said back in Romans 1.16, when it said, And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. So we understand that this two-edged sword is a reference not only to Christ Himself who is the Word, but the Word of God. Over the years, as Pergamos preached and proclaimed the Gospel, what happens and what sadly happens to many churches is an infiltration of corruptness had entered in. Pergamos was known as being infested with corrupt minds. People who were intentionally corrupting and doing whatever they could to corrupt and defile and pollute the faith of the church. Christ declares as a resolution to fight against them by the sword of His Word. Let me just say, there is none that can stand against the sword of the Lord. There is none that could stand against the Word of God. There is none that could stand face to face with our Lord and the two-edged sword and live. Christ is showing the resolve to fight against the corruption that has entered into this church. Again, this is a title he takes to himself. These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. The word of, the word of God throughout the Scriptures is declared to be a sword. A sword is, of course, offensive and a defensive weapon. And the hand of God, the sword, not only slays sin, but will also place wrath upon the unrepentant sinner. We read Numbers 25 because this is an, that is an introduction to one of the very sins and the corruption that was going on in the church at Pergamos. And we saw how swiftly God dealt with that corruption. How quickly He dealt with the doctrine of Balaam. How quickly He dealt with those who uh, lit with little, with let little conviction, if any, performed these heinous acts in front of the very temple of God, and God slayed them immediately. There was no questioning of them. There was no, uh, do you? What do you have to say for yourself? Uh, God destroyed. But he also mentioned Phineas, who took action. And it says because of Phineas, the plague was stayed. Phineas, of course, was faithful in that particular event. But Christ, as He is the Word, the Word of God, of course, is a weapon not only of offense, but also of defense. It is a sharp sword you realize that this sword, the Word of the Lord, Christ, there is never a heart that is so hard that God cannot pierce it. God cannot cut through it. The Bible talks about it, the sword of the Lord 
divides asunder between the soul and the spirit. It divides. It cuts. It not only knows and divides asunder, cuts asunder those things of the soul, the sin of the soul, and the habits that have become habitual in the life of an individual. As we've mentioned over a few of the letters, there comes a point in time when some of these congregations did not even realize the error was there or the heresy was there. And yet, Jesus seems to imply and say that you've allowed these things to happen. It's interesting that it's described as a sore with two edges. A sore with two edges turns and cuts in every way. There is the sword that is against the sinner. A sword that makes a wound. A sword that also cannot be escaped. On the right and on the left, you cannot escape the sword of God. These things are not there just for our knowledge. And they're not just there so that we might have an interesting story to read. They're there because it reminds us of the seriousness of what Jesus Christ is talking about. This two-edged sword is how he introduces what he's getting ready to say to the church at Pergamos. So the inscription of this letter is, of course, to the angel of the church at Pergamos, announcing, this is from he who has the sharp sword with two edges. Verses 13 through 16, as has been customary through these letters, we see the contents of the letter. First of all, in verse 13, we see, I know thy works and where thou dwellest. Now, this is interesting because Christ takes notice of the trials and the difficulty that this church is encountering. He is not making light of it, nor is he pushing it away. He says, I know thy works, and I know where you dwell. And he tells them where they dwell. You dwell where Satan's seat is. The works of God's servants and the works of what God is doing, God considers the circumstances in which He speaks to them about. Not excusing them, but He acknowledges, I know your circumstances. I know where you dwell. And I also know who else dwells there. The seed of Satan dwells there. He adds that even your works, there are good works even in the circumstances of the place where this church is. A place where Satan's seat is. He says, I know the works. And there are good works. There are things that are good there. He takes notice of those. He takes notice of every circumstance. Folks, you understand that the Lord knows our temptations. And He knows our discouragements. He knows where we dwell. He knows what the battle is. He knows who the enemy is. And yet, He takes note of it. even where Satan's seat is. This people dwelt in a place, as we said in the introduction, where Satan had his servants. You realize that Satan's seat is not just in one place. Satan himself, of course, cannot be everywhere equally at the same time. But do you realize there are thrones and seats of Satan set up all over this world? There are churches that are in places where Satan's seat is, where Satan dwells, where 
there is the demand and the command on people to renounce their faith in Christ and to say, we command you and demand that you worship our leader, that you worship our Caesar, if you will. There are some places in the world that are infamous for the wickedness and the cruelty that's carried out in those places. Some think, and some have said, again, we're not exhausting all of what we could talk about with Pergamos tonight, but there are many who believe that the Roman governor, the Roman leader in Pergamos was the most violent enemy to Christianity as a whole. It was the seat of persecution. Wherever Satan's seat is, persecution is there. When we see persecution in our world and when we see persecution in our country, when it comes, Satan's seat is there. There is wickedness and there's cruelty and there's evil on every side. Christ takes notice of this and he takes notice of the fact I'm fully aware that this is where Satan dwells. And as a result of that, he commends their faithfulness. He commends their steadfastness. He says, thou holdest, notice what he says, thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith. He commends their steadfastness. These two expressions, thou holdest fast my name and hast denied my faith, they really have the same sense to them. Although you might say that the former, because you've held fast my name, you've not denied my faith. It's kind of the effect. When you hold fast the name of God and hold fast the name of Christ, you will not deny it. And that's what gives the context because then he gives the example of who held fast the name and who did not deny his faith, Antipas, the faithful martyr. He says, you remain true to my name. You hold fast my name. You're not ashamed of my name. You're not ashamed to be related to me. You called an honor that my name is written upon you. Much like the wife who bears the name of her husband, he says, you are not ashamed to have that name. There is a commendation. And he says, you not only remain true to my name, but you are faithful. What makes us faithful, folks, is not our own power and it's not our own self-will. We are not faithful because we motivate ourselves every single day to faithfulness. We are faithful because of the grace of God. We are faithful because of the grace of God. You're not faithful because you gave yourself a pep talk this morning. Your pep talk will not stand in the face of severe persecution. Your motivating factors, whatever they are, will not be enough to stand to be declared faithful. We are faithful only by the grace of God. You've not denied the great doctrines of grace. You've not denied the gospel. You've not departed from the Christian faith. All these things he's saying, you have not denied my name. And by the way, we're reading today and we're reading tonight, we're thinking about the faithfulness that Christ announced to them with regard to this. He commends the fidelity of this church taking into account the circumstances of the times and the place where they lived. 
It's an interesting thought. To be faithful in a place where persecution is low, of course, is still faithfulness, but to be faithful in a place where persecution is high. I'm always burdened by those that are in very severe persecuted places who remain faithful and do not deny the name of Christ. I also believe Christ takes into account our place. That if we can't be faithful in a place where persecution is relatively low, what would we do when real persecution comes? Because the reality is, folks, that persecution is guaranteed and promised at some point. It may not be in our lifetime. We may not see it. But do you realize what he's saying to the church at Pergamos? He's saying, you have done all of these things. You have been faithful. You even are aware of my faithful martyr. And that didn't make you give up my name and did not make you ashamed. You know, it is true that our faithfulness, and I have to be reminded of this daily, that our faithfulness does have an influence on other people. Right? Your faithfulness, and on the, on the negative side of that, your lack of faithfulness, my lack of faithfulness, has an influence on people as well. Our faithfulness does matter. We might say, well, my faithfulness is just between me and God. And yes, it is between you and God, but our faithfulness is meant to encourage others. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. You saw what happened to my faithful martyr and you didn't deny my name. You're not ashamed to call me your Lord, even though one of your own was martyred. Now, this goes beyond our realm, most likely, of every, anybody in this room. And maybe I'm making an assumption. But I'm going I'm to make an assumption here that none of us have been in a church or in a place where a person of that congregation was actually martyred in front of us. There's part of us that think that that could never happen. Most Christians have never witnessed that. We've never seen an actual person be persecuted and actually martyred for their stance for Christ in our personal presence. Now, maybe you have been in that. But do you realize the difficulty of watching and understanding someone being martyred for the faith and then remaining steadfast after that? There really is a lot that Jesus is commending them for. They've been steadfast even in the days where this faithful martyr was slain. Even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. Again, as we mentioned, we don't know a lot about him from the Scripture. Now, we could get some historical books. We could do a research. We could go on the Internet. We could Google his name and we could find a lot about him. But you realize there's not a lot about him just from our text tonight. But here's what we do know. He was a faithful disciple of Christ. And he was so faithful, he was faithful unto death. I believe if he could give an account and say what did he want to be remembered for, probably he would be more humble than that. But that would all, all he would want you to know about him is I was a faithful disciple and I was faithful unto death. No accolades, no, no pomp and circumstance, faithful disciple. 
He shed his blood in a place where the Bible tells us where Satan dwelled. The other believers saw it. They knew it. They weren't discouraged by it. They weren't turned away from it. And Jesus, in a sense, mentions this to their commendation. He commends them for standing faithful and remaining firm. Now, a couple of messages ago, I mentioned to you, we would be tempted to stop and say, this must be a pretty good church that has it all together because they're faithful. They haven't renounced the name of Christ. They've watched one of their own martyred in front of them, and yet they're still steadfast. Certainly, Christ has nothing against this church. And yet, just as quickly as he commends them, he reproves them. Look at verse 14. But I have a few things against thee. Now again, I hope we don't read those things and just kind of casually brush them off. I will tell you personally, I don't want Christ to have one thing against me. And we as a church should not want Christ to have a single thing against us. We shouldn't just brush it off and say, well, he's got a few things, but, but faithfulness, right? He says, I have a few things against you because thou hast there. Now, I like the way the translation I'm using puts that. You may have a different one, but I like the way it says it. Because thou hast there. He's saying in Pergamos, in amongst your church, them, he identifies people that hold the doctrine of Balaam. He doesn't say some church on the other side of the street some church on the other side of the world, he says, there, there. It would be like the Lord himself pointing his finger at our church and saying, right there, you have people who are holding to the doctrine of Balaam in your congregation. Now, I don't know about you, but that would frighten me. That would be very scary to think about. I have a few things. He says, you have there them that hold this doctrine who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. As we saw in the scripture reading, there were some who were teaching that it was lawful to eat things that were sacrificed to idols and that fornication was no sin. That's why those two that the spear Phineas put through them, they were committing, again, parents, I apologize for this, they were committing fornication right in front of the temple, right in front of the people as if there's nothing wrong with this. And he says, you have in your congregation those who hold to that doctrine. No sin, no big deal. But it led to an impure worship. It drew people into impure practices as Balaam was doing with the Israelites, trying to draw them away from the one true God into a false doctrine. Folks, you realize that when we allow that which is corrupt, that which is filthy, those corrupt 
thoughts, those corrupt things of our flesh will lead to a corrupt worship. You, you cannot, I cannot, be filled with corrupt, vile, wicked, filthy things and then think that I can come to the house of God, gather with God's people, and my worship be pure. How often have we checked our own heart before we even enter into corporate worship where we check our heart and say, I wonder if I am feeding some things in my flesh that are filthy and vile and corrupt before we ever even come to worship. Or did we just show up because it was time for church to start? You see, there really is the connection between the flesh being fed and leading to impure worship and impure practice. Now again, he says that there are those among you which thing I hate. There's a note in my Bible that says, after God prevented Balaam from cursing Israel at the invitation of Balak, Balaam advised the king to seduce Israel into immorality and idolatry. The church tolerated similar false teachers who enticed Christians to participate in idolatrous activities involving meals and sin. It is not clear whether this was the heir of the Nicolaitans or if they taught a different heresy. He mentions two different things. He says the doctrine of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, but here's what I get from this. He says this I hate. Now, our flesh is going to want to say, well, why does God hate it? But here's what I would submit to you. If God says, who is perfectly pure and perfectly holy, says I hate this, then that's what it is. Right? Your investigation of what God says he hates is not going to lead to a different conclusion. If he says I hate this, this is an abomination. I don't have to study out to say, well, why does he hate it? If he says I hate it, then I should take it for what it is. He hates this. You say, well, God's not a God of hate. Folks, mark it down. God hates sin. And, and I'm here to tell you, and I think this is true for all of us, and I'm not trying to be ugly or cruel, but I think we all do not take sin seriously enough. I think the days when we're really aware, the days we're really conscious of our sin, I think that's good, but I, I do not think we fully grasp how much God hates sin and filthiness and vileness. Now, is it because we don't know what He thinks? Or do we choose not to just obey what His Word says is filthy? We're living in a generation of Christians that wants to justify every activity as to why this isn't so bad to do this or this or this. Instead of saying, here's what the Word of God says, and the problem is not with God's command. The problem is with we don't like it because our flesh is fighting against that. Folks, make no mistake about it. When God says don't, your flesh is going to say, but I'm going to. I will. Your flesh is still fighting against the spirit, the new man that dwells within you. As I mentioned to you last week, this is a fight. This is not just some small skirmish we're having with sin. This is the very thing... Sin is the very thing which will destroy 
Now, if we're in Christ tonight, we're thankful to know that Christ has redeemed us from all our iniquities. As we read even in the psalm, we're thankful that He has taken pity upon us and He's not given us and rewarded our iniquity. Because you know what the reward of your iniquity is? The reward of your iniquity is hell. And the psalmist says, praise God, He hasn't given you that reward. That's a reward you don't want. But out of His mercy and His grace. So Christ does reprove them for their sin. To continue in fellowship or communion with people who held to these corrupt principles or practices is an abomination and is displeasing to God. Folks, I also think that we have made sin so personal that we think our sin only affects us. And you realize if we tolerate sin in our life, if we tolerate it to where we're allowing it to happen, we bring not only a blemish on the name of God, which is the most important thing on the name of Christ, but we also bring a blemish on our entire church as if this is just my sin. See, sin doesn't just affect you. Sin affects everyone around you. Now we, through the church, understand that we can't execute punishment as far as governmental punishment, right? But there are penalties. There are commands that the Bible says that if there are those that hold to false doctrines, those that hold maybe not to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans or the doctrine of Balaam, but they hold to a false heretical doctrine, it is not okay for you just to let them exist and stay and think that that's not displeasing to God. Yet we're in this age of no offense and it's filtered into the church. The church says, well, we can't ask somebody to leave who holds a false doctrine because we don't want to get a bad reputation in the community. We don't want to get a bad... We can't tolerate it. Again, we're not talking about personality differences, folks. We're not talking about people that see opinions differently. We're talking about those that were holding to clearly sinful, heretical doctrines and they were not dealing with it. They're just looking the other way. The church doesn't have the power to carry out legal action, of course. But even as we've learned in our confession study, the church has the power to exclude them from the communion and the fellowship of that church. And if we don't, and if the church at Pergamos doesn't, which is what he says, he will be displeased with it. How do we know how displeased he is? Because in verse 16, Christ calls them to repentance. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Repentance is a daily responsibility of all saints. It's part of our gospel responsibility. If there's a single day in your life that you think repentance is unnecessary, your flesh is already getting an upper hand on you. Because you have not had a single day, nor have I, that you did not need to repent of a sinful thought, a sinful action, a sinful deed, a sinful word, probably all of the above. Repentance is not, I did that once. Repentance is a daily repentance. It's not only the responsibility of individuals to repent, but it's the responsibility even of a church to repent together if need be. He wasn't just saying, now all you individuals repent. He's telling the whole church, 
Church, all of you need to repent for allowing this to happen. Have you ever been, again, maybe you have, have you ever been at a church prayer meeting where the entire church was repenting for the sins of that church? Can our church be in a situation where it may not be this kind of a doctrine, but that we might need to repent of a sin corporately as a church? It certainly can happen. You see, it's easy to look at these churches, and this is one of the warnings I gave us when we read and began looking at these seven churches, to separate ourselves and to just simply take what feels better to our flesh is, boy, I'm glad he's only talking to these seven churches, and there's no application to us. Every one of these letters has an application to us, even though they were addressed to individual churches. Remember, Christ himself said he is the two-edged sword. Repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Fight against those who are holding to these heretical doctrines. Now, a bit different than the other ending of the previous letters. The conclusion of this letter beginning in verse 17 has the traditional or usual call of attention. You see verse 17, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. That's been kind of the common conclusion of of these letters. But notice this call. To him that overcometh will I give to eat, and there's three things mentioned. Hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name. There's really depth of importance in these final words of this particular letter. The hidden manna is a reference to not only the influence, but the comfort of the Spirit of Christ. When we are in communion with God, when we're in communion with the Spirit, there is a comfort and there is a sweet influence in that communion. When we go through difficulties, when we go through trials, the communion with God through the Spirit is there to support. You realize that that hidden manna, that manna that was placed in part of the Ark of the Covenant in the very Holy of Holies was a picture of how Christ, and, as who is the manna, would support His people. But you realize the unbelieving world The reason it's referred to as hidden manna is because the unbelieving world doesn't have the benefit of that manna. The unbelieving world doesn't have the support of the Spirit. Doesn't know the presence of Christ. But He reminds them, you as My people, you have that hidden manna that brings that joy and that peace and that comfort that when we talk about the peace and the joy of the Lord, it's because of the joy and the peace and the comfort we have in Christ. The letter's reminding them, remember who you are. Remember how God has provided for you. Remember how God provided for Israel in the wilderness with the manna from heaven. But he also mentions... I will not only give to eat of the hidden manna, but I will give him a white stone. This white stone is a very interesting illustration here. Notice that the white stone is also engraved with a name on it. The white stone 
Again, I found this very interesting, and this, again, this is, this is going into looking at even some commentaries and looking at some historical accounts, but even in Pergamos itself, the white stone was a picture or evidence of being absolved from the guilt of a crime. In other words, in their court system, if you were found not guilty in whatever you had done, there was actually a white stone given to them that would verify and confirm you are not guilty of what this accusation was. On the other hand, if you were found guilty or condemned, that person would be given a black stone. Jesus takes that and he uses it to describe not only this hidden man, but he describes, think about what you have been absolved, what you have been forgiven from. You should have been found guilty. You should pay the wages of your sin. But through Christ, you have been given a white stone. And upon that white stone, a name is written on that stone. You know what the name represents? It represents our adoption into the body of Christ. Not only have you been found absolved from that, but you have a new name that's been written on that stone. Adopted persons in our physical realm, they take on the name of the family in which they're adopted into. When we are adopted into the family of God, we take on evidence of that adoption. We don't see it written on our forehead. We're not carrying a stone in our pocket that has our a white stone that has our name engraved on it. But do you know where the presence of that is? It's the evidence of our sonship. It's the evidence of our inheritance. And what is that? It's the presence of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God is what gives evidence that I am adopted into the family of God. I have been taken into God's family, not because of any merit, not because of any goodness of my own, I deserved hell. I deserved to be separated from all of eternity. I deserved death. But because of Christ, I've been given a new name. When Christ commands this church and other churches to repent, He's calling upon the church at Pergamos and all other churches to exercise discipline and removing those members of the congregation who are holding to that heresy. And maybe even further, he's calling them to not tolerate the sin. Act more like the church in Ephesus. When he said, with regard to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, remember what he told the church in Ephesus, Ephesians 2, 6, or uh, um, Revelation 2, 6, he said, But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He said the exact opposite to the church of Pergamos. He says, you have them there that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. The church at Ephesus, he said, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, and so do I. Christ promises that judgment will begin with his corrupted people. We have to remember that as believers, this new name refers to the individual's new name which he received from Christ. Isaiah 62.2 says, And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness and all kings thy glory, and thou shalt be called by a new name which the mouth of the Lord shall name. 
The Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians that not only do we have this new name, but we have a new identity in Christ. Galatians 6.15, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. Folks, Christ reminds them of who they are. We need to be reminded tonight of who we are in Christ. And that there is no such thing as a small sin. There is no such thing as a small vice, a small corruption, a small transgression. God hates sin. And even though He commends them for some of their good things and probably gives what we would say is the highest of honors that a martyr died amongst you and you stayed faithful, yet He says you have this thing that I hate that's still in your presence. Folks, these letters, they're not easy to read. And if we just read these academically and we read them intellectually and we don't look at the spiritual, the spiritual meat in this, we're going to miss what the intent was. The goal is not to know everything there was to know about the town and the city of Pergamos or the town of Ephesus or the town of Smyrna. It's the spiritual truths and the spiritual principles that Christ is laying down about how he looks at his church and how he views it. And how we can be so tempted to just simply say, well, it's really not that big of a deal because we have all these faithful things. We have all these things that we do so well, certainly these will outweigh the bad things. I don't know about you, but to be reminded about the manna, the support that we get from the Spirit, and to be reminded about that stone that we have been forgiven, there's, there's been remission for our sins, and that we have a new name written. Folks, this ought to be a great encouragement tonight, but also tonight, but also a challenge to our hearts to consider ourselves personally. And say, where am I personally? How do I truly view my own sin? Do I view my sin the way God views it? Or have I told myself, maybe it's not as bad as what it seems? Christ says to these churches, not going to tolerate sin. You need to remove it. Repent or else, he says. Even though you've been faithful to hold my name and you're not ashamed of me, you cannot allow that to continue. It's a hard lesson to learn, but I hope we'll be challenged tonight. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, this is difficult. Lord, it's difficult to consider and to read your word and to see the clarity of what you're telling us and what you're speaking to us about. And Father, our sinful pride just continues to rear its ugly head. To think that we could not possibly be guilty of anything as bad as this, these doctrines that the church at Pergamos was allowing. Lord, how tempted we are to raise up and give all of our credit to the good things that we're doing and yet missing the reality that you have something against us, not just as an individual, but maybe even as a church. 
Father, we know that nothing escapes Your eye. There is nowhere we can go and hide. There's no sin that we could push under a rug or hide behind a door that You would not see. Father, may the purity of Your church and the purity of our lives Lord, may these things overwhelm us and remind us of who we are, our identity in Christ. And Father, that those that have been bought with the precious blood of the Lamb of Jesus Christ, Lord, would be diligently aware of our own tendency to the filth and the corruptness of this world. Father, we are, we are touched by its filth every single day. And Lord, we become so accustomed and comfortable with it that we tend to even forget that it's even there. Lord, we know that your church, you command us to be pure and you command us to live godly lives. And Lord, tonight, may each one of us take this personally and take it home to our families and speak often of it. And don't just brush this aside as just another Bible lesson. But Father, thank you that your word, your word teaches and tells us exactly what you think of your church. Father, help us now as we leave here in just a few moments, Lord, meditating on these truths. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing on hymn number 77. Hymn number 77, a song we have sang many, many times. And it's a song that reminds us of the grace of God. Hymn number 77, God of Grace. <laughs>